Today's episode of The Dirt comes with a shout out to our two newest Patreon supporters. Thank you, thank you, thank you to Nita and to Sarah and family. Your support means so much. If you want to support The Dirt and help us create more and better content, check out all the different ways you can become a dirtbag at www.patreon.com slash thedirtpodcast. On with the show. I can't tell from an iPhone picture what's... <laughs> What you ate. I'm going to say pepperoni roll. Hello, and welcome to the dirt a podcast all about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human story. Before we begin today's uh, exciting episode, I would like to make a teeny tiny correction from episode 5 where we talked about ancient footprints in a town in the UK that I pronounced Happisborough because that's how it's spelled. But apparently it is pronounced Haysborough, which, you know, of course, silly me. Why put a P in, is what I'm saying. Why put the P's in if you're not going to say the P's? But then there's two P's, so the fir- the second P cancels out the first P. No, there's no negative P. It is mm-hmm. not P negative P equals zero. It is two P's. Should be... Look. You, you seem pretty un I'll get over it. I'll get over it. Someday. Anyway, uh, what are we talking about today? Oh, let's talk about bread, baby. Let's talk about einkorn wheat. Let's talk about all the good things and the bad things that we eat. Let's, Let's talk about bread. Let's talk about bread. Specifically, Let's. Let's talk about the earliest evidence for bread in human diets, uh, or at least something bread adjacent. I, too, <laughs> have, in my quest to be a baker, produced things that are bread adjacent. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we can definitely relate here. Mm-hmm. Um, this is definitely part of our shared human story. and. Oustery, if you will. Ooh. It's not. It's not history. No, it's ouster. Our, our, that's very difficult to say. <laughs> yeah. All right. We'll workshop it. <laughs> but join me. Come join me at Shubaika One. That's a site. <laughs> so Shubaika is in the northeast interior of what is now Jordan, um, and it is. It's in the Black Desert, and it's described as a Natufian hunter-gatherer site. So the Natufian culture, material culture, rather. So it's hard. You don't want to. So whenever we talk about cultures, we don't want to equate material that we excavate with people. Yeah, like and we're in terms of not talking ethnicity. about ethnicity. Yeah, right. Nope. So nope. Natufian material, it's found in sites dating to the Epipaleolithic. So that's around fourteen and a half thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. to 11,500 years ago. So we have the Middle Paleolithic, which in Europe and the Levant, which is sort of Israel, Jordan, Palestine, um, that area, we have the Middle Paleolithic, which is starts at about mm, 250,000 or so years ago and extends to um, the border with the Upper Paleolithic, which is around 40,000 years ago, 50 to 40,000 years ago, give or take, depending on what part of the world you're in. And then the Upper Paleolithic extends into the Neolithic, which happens around 11,000 years ago with the first sort of advent of agriculture, just to to give us a timeline. 
Yeah. Yeah. And so the so in terms of if we're going to radiocarbon date something from the Natufian culture, those dates would fall sometime between the end of the Pleistocene. So that's when like all the megafauna and ice ages and things you may remember up to the beginning of the Holocene, which so is what we're in now, which is what we're in now. Yep. Um, Holocene. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's the time period that we're dealing with right now. And so we're going to talk we'll talk about the the Natufian period and Natufian culture. Um mm. I used square quotes there. Uh we'll talk about that later because there is some extremely cool stuff that's happening in that time and from those sites and there's also some um really famous studies that have been done on material from Natufian sites. Yes, but um, I was told we were going to talk about bread. We're talking about bread baby uh, and we're talking about bread bread adjacent substances from shubeka you know you know what they did there they, they did, did baker they did bacon <laughs> um yeah so <laughs> <laughs> so um according if you were here i'd high five you oh man i'm, I'm glad i'm not um so oh. at this site the excavators found the intact contents of a fireplace and so uh, there were two separate fireplaces fire pits that were excavated so there was one and then there was a uh, about a half meter of material that was deposited over it um, and then there was another one established in a later settlement like a, a later level of occupation at this settlement um, and then there was a second one and in both cases they were able to excavate what was in the fireplace after the last meal that they cooked there. And it may seem counterintuitive, but um, things that have been burned, carbonized, charred, they actually sometimes tend to preserve better than things that are just sort of left raw. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so um, they, they were able to excavate these fireplaces um, and so since there were things that were charred, and since a lot of the things that were charred were things that had a very short lifetime, so when you do radiocarbon dating, the, the date is the date at which it stopped growing, not right. the date at which it was consumed or whatever. So if you, you know, if you have a 400-year-old house, like if you have a house made out of, and the roof beams are 400 years old, and it That's burned down. the tree was chopped down. Exactly. So it. So the how if you tested those roof beams later, you would think that that settlement or that site was 400 years older than the occupation level that you're in, because right, it can be so, tricky. So it can be really tricky. But when you've got things that are only living a single season, so like something that you're eating, it makes it much cleaner and much you can feel much more confident about the the samples that you're taking, especially if you get a lot of them. And they did here. And so they dated the site to approximately 14.4 to 14.2 thousand years ago. So because the idea is that agriculture um, and the sort of intentional cultivation of plants and animals started in the Neolithic. And so remember, we're not in the Neolithic. Mm -mm. We're in the Paleolithic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. So um, what did they find? Do you have a guess? Do you have a guess what they found, Anna? Probably bones and plant stuff. Yes, they did. Specifically, a lot of plants. So, 
ton of archaeobotanical evidence. So that can include any plant material that survives in the archaeological record, everything from grains, both grains themselves and grains of pollen, to charred seeds, like I just talked about, to the chaff and bricks. Like anything that tells you what plants were growing at the time that people were living in the place that you're studying can yeah, tell you something. It doesn't mean that they were necessarily eating all of those plants. Like people use plants for a lot of different things. And also sometimes plant seeds and plant pollen just kind of gets into where you're living. Either people track it in or it gets blown in. But the really cool thing about the fact that so many of these plant remains were in a fireplace is it it seems a little bit more deliberate. So you can probably narrow it down to they were eating the things, they were burning the things. Yeah. They probably knew that those things were getting in that fire. Yeah. Um, and so in this a corpus of 65,000 well-preserved non-woody plant macro remains. So Okay, so non-woody plants means not trees. Yes. And macro remains it means that it, it's more you than can, 2 you millimeters. You can see it with your eyeball. It, yeah, yeah, and it, for the purposes of this study they said 2 millimeters. So like oh, Okay. Yeah, so 65,000 crumbs of plants. Um, 95. Would you want to be that intern? I know. <laughs> it, it made me think of like the one time that I helped the paleoethnobotanist at the site that I worked at. And she was so amazing that we were all like, yes, yes, we definitely want to do this for a living. And then we got back to campus and we read one book and we're like, oh my God, no. <laughs> because we were just like lured in. Everything's so tiny. I know. It was just like all beautiful and just like we just learned so much. And oh, but then we we came back and we're like, no, this is is dull. But shout out to all my my paleo ethnobotany. (laughs) No, it is out there. But it is incredible research that I'm glad someone has the patience to like withstand to actually get to this incredible stuff that we're finding out. So 65,000 plant crumbs. What were they? From, what were they the crumbs? Were, well, there were 95 different taxa of plants. So Taxa equals species. Yes. Yeah. So I can go through and name <laughs> 95 types of plants. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you the big ones. Hit me, hit me so, with the highlights. Okay. So the majority of these were from um, club rush tubers. And okay. so... Sounds really tasty. <laughs> right? Mm. Ew. So club rush tubers, I looked them up. They are um, Latin. Well, you names. texted me. You texted me a picture, and like they look like a mix between beets and shrunken heads. Like, yeah, it's not, so they so they look, they look like um, like Jerusalem artichokes, sunchokes. Oh, that makes sense. They yeah. have Which, that neither artichokes nor from Jerusalem, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah, because it's a mistranslation, a misunderstanding of the Italian word. Yes, girasole. Yes. Because they're sunchokes. They're from some Yes, they are. They're also yes. uh, one of the few indigenous um, tubers in America. Ah, oh, oh, that's such a fun fact. Um, mm, tasty. <laughs> but, so they kind of look like that. Um, and they are, according to this modern forager website I read, they're kind of kind of tough. They're sort of um, both tough in consistency but also they're kind of hard to work with and they aren't necessarily nutrient dense enough to make them worth their while that um, said though uh it, they were found in a fire so yeah. maybe they were so, cooked and and cooking starches makes them in- 
way more nutritionally uh, valuable. Yeah, and typically, and they um, they ate a lot. There would have been a lot of them processed because fifty about fifty thousand of those sixty five thousand macaroons oh. were from Club Rush tubers. So maybe they took like the panda approach of just like <laughs> working through it. Like spending their day doing that. Um, but what else was there is very exciting. Um, okay. So there were uh, crucifers. So cruciferous veggies or their their predecessors. Um, small seeded legumes. Oh, just to just in case not everyone knows what crucifers are. Uh, it's your cauliflower, your broccoli, your bok choy, that kind of cabbage type vegetable. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, and this is this is the pre-agriculture form of those things, so they would not look recognizable as as a broccoli or a or a cabbage, but um, it's in that family. Yeah. So the, so they had those. They had small seeded legumes, and so that's something that and those are related to peas. Oh, so they're okay. Okay. Yeah. So they're I don't know how closely. They're, I mean, if we have some. <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry they you don't have to talk about beans if it's gonna make you make that noise <laughs> no i just no um they are pulses um also uh cereals so so, so these uh, people had their had their finger on the pulse mm. that was good Come on, i wish i could make that noise again <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like i i spent it too soon um so they also had and here's here's the important part anna you gotta focus Okay. Grains. Mm-hmm. Grains. Wild einkorn wheat. Um, that that's one of the that's one of the big ones in terms of early domestication of grains. Einkorn yes. is and it's also um this is something you will also see in like hippy dippy markets. Um so you, you very you, dense bread. Yeah. And so it's it's got a, it has quite a bit of, of protein in it, so a lot of gluten in it. Also, they uh, found barley and oats. I mean, and, and that's like, that's real stuff. That's grains. That's that's, like, that's real. Yeah, but could, these these are also bread. These, the wild the wild forms of them. Yes. So, but still, with, they were there. Yeah, and so in the wild forms of these cereals, um, there are fewer kernels per stalk. Yeah, and they're smaller. Um, and right? they're smaller. And tougher. Yeah, and they're tougher. Yeah, they have. Um, oh wow, it's all it's all coming back to me. Um, they have a tougher sort of outer kernel kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Not a kernel. The the outer membrane of the kernel is tougher. And and so when it was domesticated and bred for consumption, they also bred it to be easier to process. Um and and so Hull? Yeah. Yeah. I did it. Yes. Okay. So We've tallied up our 65,000 well-preserved non-woody plant macaroon remains. Yeah, it feels like um, it. Yeah, yeah. and um, of, of like, in this corpus also, there were 642 macroscopic lumps of charred food remains. Yum. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so here's here's some fun research. This is, so I'm quoting the, the article here. Um from the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America. Uh, <laughs> yes. 
quote, the detailed tissue analysis of experimental serial-based preparations has recently allowed for the establishment of new criteria to identify flatbread, dough, and porridge-like products in the archaeological record, end quote. Which so means... somebody boiled up a whole lot of oatmeal and they've did been, some science Yeah, they've it. been making bad bread and setting it on fire and then looking at it under a microscope. And that is great. And so when the researchers applied these methods to the material recovered at Shubaika 1, um, 24 of those 642 delicious macroscopic lumps were categorized as... say that phrase. <laughs> oh, they were categorized Ooh. as bread-like, which is a bit rude to our Natufian friends, but very, very exciting. Yeah, so they matched the experimental charred bread blobs that the researchers made yeah because like if you have um if you have some bread in front of you or you can i, I often call do. call a, an image of bread to your mind there mm -hmm. are the uh the little pockets of air and then also that that can tell you when those are preserved and also just the structures of the starches and the proteins and the grains themselves, you can see what types of processes has happened to them. So you can tell yeah. what went into it. And so if you, um, if one were to check out this article, you can see lots of really great, very up close, very personal images of these lumps of bread-like substance. Um, yeah. Well, maybe we can post a link to the article. Yeah, on, definitely. On yeah. It'll definitely be in the show yeah. notes. Um, and, um, we will, I'll try, we'll try to throw up a photo too for folks that don't have access to the, the journal. Um, the evidence found at Shubeka suggests that the bread-like foods are made of club rush tuber flour, which oh. it's, which when it's used on its own, it's, it's kind of like, like chalky and gritty and like just not great. It's not great for baking, but if you add wheat flour to it, or if you add a flour, a grain flour that has gluten in it. Um, like from einkorn, barley, or oat that they had available. Uh -huh. um, if you add that to it, it, it gives it um, more, a more elastic quality. It makes it kind of stretchy, like pizza dough. And that's what, that's what makes it easier to form. And then there's, there's evidence that it was cooked either just in the ashes itself um, okay. or over a hot stone. Or like in a tenor type oven, which isn't unlike how naan is produced in tandoori ovens today. If you ever saw that, oh. they stretch it out and slap it against the side, and then one is pulls. so good. Yeah, and so it's the same. If it ain't broke, no, yeah, don't, bread, don't, yeah, bread like, dough plus hot rock, and, and like, like it has worked for centuries, millennia, like, millennia. Yeah, and like there, are, I feel like there are a few things that humans have truly nailed, and one of them is bread. And so um, we've seen evidence for this club rush flatbread. We've seen it at, at late Neolithic sites in Turkey and the Netherlands, which as we discussed last week, if you see it in two places and aren't really in touch with each other at about the same time, it has a, it stands to reason that it has a much earlier antecedent. Mm -hmm. um, but the evidence at Shubeka suggests a date of roughly four thousand years before the previously understood threshold for um, introducing bread-like products 
into a That's diet. That's so cool. Yeah, and it's and it's it's so cool. And then other things that are like super cool about this is sort of what it means and sort of what it means within the context of the site. So since I as I mentioned, these bread-like products were made shortly before the site was abandoned. So, you know, this is a period where people are hunting and gathering, so they would be less sedentary. Yeah, and it's worth it's worth pointing out that if you've got people making bread, there's a lot of work that goes into yeah. because it's not like they're going out and finding flour somewhere. They are finding the seeds and grains that make up the flour, so they have to yeah, grind the flour, they have to you know, prepare the dough. So yeah. it's, it's a bread big is, time investment. Bread is labor intensive yeah. in the best of circumstances, but when you are having to kind of forage, for want of a better word, for all of the ingredients and then process them when they are not designed to be processed easily. Yeah, I can um, barely do it when I have to forage at a supermarket. So Yeah, same. Um, like, I can't make bread without a KitchenAid mixer. So, like, I... I would never. We wouldn't be really good as hunter gatherers, is no, what we're saying. No, no, and apparently, like, no, I would. Mm, I don't know. I have to think about this. But we have evidence of bread production in the last meals before the site was abandoned twice. So it could be that this was something that they made travel food before. Yeah, before like heading out. I don't know because I mean we're just looking at the last ones. I would, like maybe they're doing this every day. Right. Maybe yeah. Maybe bread was typical, but at yeah. the very least we can say that they made some before they left. Right. Sorry. So Go if ahead. you want to check out the delicious archaeobotanical evidence from Shubeka One, um, and and read about all of the macroscopy they did, um, like lumps. Of those bread-like lumps, you can check out the article in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America. Uh, and My lumps. My lovely bread-like lumps. Check it out. Yes. Thank you. And so, it turns out, no matter what Brad at the CrossFit gym tells you, grains do fit into the paleo diet after all. Don't <laughs> they, Anna? They sure do. <laughs> This is the welcome to the portion of the episode where Anna gets really annoyed about a fad diet. <sighs> I mean, but is it really a fad? Because it's been around for fifteen thousand years. Is it going anywhere? Tell me okay. about the paleo diet. You're an expert in this. Well, <laughs> there's two very different things that we are talking about here. One is the things that people ate during the Paleolithic. Ah. Two is the capital P, capital D, Paleo diet, which uh, is traced to, says the internet, a 1975 book by gastroenterologist Walter Wirklin, which in 1985 was further developed by Stanley Boyd Eaton and Melvin Connor and popularized by Lauren Cordain in his 2002 book, The Paleo Diet. Yeah, do you, the you, paleo you studied under a, this guy at Boston, didn't you? He's an oh. expert. <laughs> Look, my research for the past half dozen years or so has been on actual diet, the, the things that people ate during the Paleolithic. So I do have some thoughts about this. So, but let did me, you write let me back a book up about and, it and talk about the like the the current modern capital P capital D paleo diet? Okay, so it's it is a diet, okay, uh, a <laughs> regimen 
based upon, and this is directly from the website, thepaleodiet.com, it is based upon everyday modern foods that mimic the food groups of our pre-agricultural hunter-gatherer ancestors. The following seven fundamental characteristics of hunter-gatherer diets will help to optimize your health, minimize your risk of chronic disease, and lose weight. Okay. So here are some of those principles. First of all, it's a higher protein diet. It recommends that you get about 19 to 35% of your calories from protein. And that said, the human body's limit for calories from protein is in fact about 35%. So after, after that, that point, do your like your kidneys explode? They, I mean, they might as well. So you get this condition that's that's called rabbit starvation. In medical terms, it's it's something like ketosis. And basically, uh, your internal organs can no longer process that amount of protein, and you're not getting anything from it. And if you're not consuming enough other nutrients, you can actually very quickly starve and die, even if you're eating as much protein as you can fit in your body. So that's it's the, called rabbit starvation because um, fur trappers in like the 17 and 1800s in early North America were eating lots and lots of rabbit because they were hunting them and trapping them for furs. And they were eating all this rabbit, but they would still get really sick and starve and die because rabbit is a really lean protein and they weren't getting enough uh, vitamins and minerals and fat and carbs. So they got sick and died. So don't do that. But the internet tells me that ketosis is a good thing. Nope. Don't listen to the internet. If you are interested in changing your nutrition regimen, please see a doctor or a nutritionist. Like, don't listen to us, for one thing. We're an archaeology podcast. We're not nutritionists. But what I can tell you is that your body doesn't need more than 35% of its calories from protein. Um, another focus of the paleo diet is a low-carb, low low-glycemic index. Like, don't eat a lot of processed sugars. That one, you know, I can agree with. Uh, moderate and higher fat intake with a focus on good fats, so the unsaturated ones, the ones that are liquid at room temperature, and fats that are high in your your omega fatty acids. You also want to intake lots of vitamins and minerals, so lots of plant foods, and a low sodium intake. Like So those are some of the principles of the paleo diet, and I agree with many of them. But also that could just be called like the eating good diet for human people. There's no reason to call it the paleo diet. For one thing, there is no such thing as a monolithic paleo diet, a diet from the Paleolithic. In the same way that different groups all over the world today eat different foods, thousands of years ago, your diet depended a whole lot on your environment. Go figure. You know, you couldn't you couldn't order things on the internet, but you could get stuff from what was around you. And if your environment was limited, yes, your resources and your diet would be limited. But a lot of uh, Paleolithic groups, Neanderthals, and early anatomically modern humans were living in resource-rich environments. So, let's kind of I, zoom I just back had into, a, hmm? I just I just reread your line about optimizing your health, minimizing your risk of chronic disease, and lose weight. And I just like got lightheaded because like the idea behind. The, like minimizing one's risk of chronic disease and losing weight, isn't that fueled by this idea that our Paleolithic ancestors didn't have those ailments and were skinny, tight, sexy bodies with healthy arteries? But they also didn't eat Twinkies and spray cheese. Like, anyway, back to the science before <laughs> I just Hulk smash this entire 
podcasting setup. So um, this is also really just a chance for me to talk about my favorite humans, the Neanderthals. Um, so we're going to try and get a picture of what diet looked like in the Paleolithic before and during this sort of bread horizon from Shubaika um, at, at 14,000 or so years ago. So Neanderthals are our closest ancient relatives. We share a genus, so we're Homo sapiens, they are Homo neanderthalensis. And since there is evidence of Neanderthal DNA in parts of the human bloodline, go ahead and get your DNA checked. You may find that you're up to 4% Neanderthal. Like me! Uh, many, yay! Yay! Many people... Wait, did you get that tested? No, I just uh, I just have a lot of... A lot, have of, a lot of feelings Neanderth- about Neanderthals? No, well, yes, I also have a lot of Neanderthal traits. So many people uh, think that we're actually both human species that could interbreed. That makes sense. So we're finding more and more evidence that uh, just as with later anatomically modern humans, Neanderthals ate what was around them. It's just that sometimes food remains aren't preserved as well as other types. So for a long time in Europe and the Levant, that's the two places where we see Neanderthals, we had really an incomplete picture of what the Neanderthal diet looked like because it was mostly the animal bones that preserved and people didn't have the methods to um, really see any other parts of the diet. So there's there's been this assumption that the Neanderthal diet was really meat heavy. And I think that um, there's new evidence that's showing that when resources were available, depending on the environment, Neanderthals actually consumed a much more diverse set of foods. In some parts of Europe, in some climatic conditions, yeah, it was probably cold and there was probably snow and probably not a lot of nice green vegetable plant stuff around, but that wasn't all places all the time. So, And so if any of this is sounding like major duh territory here, that like people eat what's around them and people eat people don't eat things that don't exist in their environment um that's i think that just is a really great testament to sort of the strength of uh conventional wisdom absence of evidence is not evidence of absence ding 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 (laughs) so um since this bread bombshell um takes place in the levant in jordan modern go ahead jordan use your pun It's a revolution in the Middle East. Okay. Um, So I'm going to start in the Levant, since that's where this bread story comes from. And um, we're going to start there, and we're going to go over some of the ways that we're beginning to get more information about early human diets. And the first one is something that we already encountered at Shubaika, and it is straight up garbage, a.k.a. the remains of human existence. So in this case hearth remains from a site called Torfarage, which dates to between 49 and 69,000 years ago in, again, modern-day Jordan. So the source of evidence here, again, is materials preserved in hearths, fireplaces, and they include phytoliths. So we briefly mentioned phytoliths in, I think, episode one, and those are little silica remains of the interior structures of plants and they have really specific shapes so if you look at them under a microscope you can see phytoliths and determine usually to a pretty specific um, degree what plants they come from. Um, There were seeds preserved, there were starch grains preserved from tubers in these hearths and there was one lonely instance of a starch grain from a pistachio. So 
I, mean, I really want to make conclusions from that, but probably can't. Um, there were also <laughs> phytoliths from, uh, like, I want to, I want to think that they were sitting around the fire snacking on pistachios, but that's not responsible science. So, oh, well, um, there were also phytoliths of grass seeds and date palms. And then, of course, there were animal remains at the site as well. So bones from gazelle, there were antler pieces, and, and they were using, they were clearly butchering these animals and also using them uh, in sort of a workshop area of the cave. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about things that they were eating. So this is a really um, diverse diet. It's got, you got your meats, you got your starches, you got your seeds. Um, we don't really know what they were doing with the seeds, but... Um, it's not just a monolithic meat, meat, meat diet. You know, there's clearly still some missing information, but um, there's more to the picture for sure. Um, there is another way to get evidence of what people ate, and that is to look at the things they used to eat their food. Forks. The twofers. Oh. No, not the forks. Paleo forks. Paleo forks. That's what we call teeth. <laughs> Okay, so there actually are a couple of ways that teeth can contribute clues to ancient diets. And the first one is called a dental calculus, which is not oh, no. some terrible form of tooth math. It's like two of my greatest fears. <laughs> you're going to the dentist and you're going to have to solve equations while he drills you. No, uh, dental calculus is plaque. So you know when you go to the dentist and, and they take the, the awful pointy middle hook thing. And yep. they scrape gunk off your teeth. So that's plaque. If you do not have access and to dental care. And people didn't have access to dental care 50,000 years ago. This uh, is one of those times. Well, actually. Well, actually. Do tell well, me. Okay. Well, no, they, they didn't have access to plaque scraping. Let's leave it at that. Okay. Um, so Ooh, that, what a that plaque, well, it's, I'll get to it. That plaque actually calcifies mineralizes and it solidifies into a substance called dental calculus and things get trapped in the gunk like microscopic plant remains and bacteria so we can take ancient teeth and sample some of that dental calculus from them look at it under a microscope and see those things so at this point we're going to um, peel off into europe for a cool example of dental calculus uh, giving us clues to Neanderthal diet. So this is an article from 2017 by Weyrich et al., also going to go up on the show notes on the Facebook page. And it is a study of dental calculus from five Neanderthal individuals. Two of them are from Spee Cave What's in Belgium. Spy? It's spelled spy, pronounced spee. Mm, I know. Spy cave. I know. Spy cave. Spy cave. Dun, 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 dun. Spy cave. Okay. Uh Two individuals from El Cedrone Cave in Spain, and one from the confusingly French and Italian hybrid named Broy Grotta in Italy. I don't know what accent to do for that one. It's it's a grotta, a cave in Italy, named for Henri Broy, who was a French uh, clergyman and prolific amateur archaeologist. He discovered oh, no. a whole bunch of stuff in the early 20th century. Oh, I don't like actually. I don't okay. like seeing those three words in in order. Prolific was, amateur archaeologist is a. I mean, for the time, he was okay. Okay, all right. He was um, a, a so, man of his time. Yes. So, this study took that dental calculus and did a bunch of DNA tests on it, 
and they did that to determine both the animal and plant component of the diet. So at Spy Cave, Spy Cave, the diet was heavily meat-based and included woolly rhinoceros and wild sheep. So characteristic of an environment that was cold and like a glacial steppe. So open grasslands, not a whole lot of tree cover, colder environment, and uh, bigger sort of hairy animals. In contrast, when they did the DNA tests on the Neanderthal calculus from El Cedrón, dietary components showed no meat and components of mushrooms, pine nuts, and moss reflecting forest gathering. Now, I have some real problems with the complete absence of meat from the diet. Like, where are they getting that protein? But it's, in, it's really interesting that, first of all, that diet varies so dramatically between these two, you know, different environments, but also um, the behavior is so different. This is a lot of gathering versus hunting. Yeah. Um, so back to that, that dental care little teaser. Mm-hmm. There was, oh, there was no. an individual. Oh, no, I know about this. Oh, no. From El Cedron. <laughs> that had DNA in his dental calculus that specifically relates back to fungal pathogens. And, and there is a wildly speculative theory that he was treating an abscessed tooth. So there was, I mean, the, it wasn't speculation that he had an abscessed tooth. He did. We can see that in, in his jaw. But the presence of the fungal pathogens suggests that maybe... He may have deliberately been consuming moldy stuff as a means of self-medicating, like early penicillin. Again, wildly speculative, but super cool. Why are you making such sad noises? That is, oh. What's uh, the abscessed is, tooth or the penicillin? That is my abscessed tooth memory. Oh, no, I'm sorry. No, I didn't not, mean to trigger no, not, tooth memories. Oh, not personal. Just like in um, Anthro Lab. Where they're like, let's oh, no. look at these jaws. It's like, yeah. oh, why is all this bone gone? And be like, oh, the abscess ate it and that's what killed them. So deliberate consumption of moldy material. Maybe. Could that be, yeah. So, because you have fungal pathogens in mouth. Um, could you not just eat something that molded? Yeah, you absolutely could. Which is why I am continuing to stress that this is a wildly speculative interpretation okay, of this so, data. So, okay. So in Belgium... We have straight up paleo diet keto types. And in El Cidron, we have vegans Vegan into Neanderthals. homeopathy. Yeah. Cool. I mean, that's one way to, to cool. <laughs> interpret the situation. It's not the right way to interpret the situation. <laughs> no, it's just a really it's, cool example of the tough. wild variation in diet it's, with... <laughs> The, with the <laughs> the concurrent variation in environment, Amber. It's it's tough to have a show with no straight man, especially when we're trying to educate people. We're doing our best. <laughs> so there's another yeah. tooth yeah. clue that can help us unlock dietary mysteries. Is this one uh, gross? This one sounds... No, it's not gross. Okay. It just sounds it sounds cool and super sciencey. So it's <laughs> occlusal micro or macroware. So occlusal refers to the surfaces of your teeth that touch together when you when you close your mouth. Um, so your occlusal surfaces, those are the ones that come in contact with the food that you chew. And so there is a phenomenon where uh, the different textures of food types that you consume 
leave traceable marks on your molars and some of them are macroscopic and some of them are microscopic so sometimes you can see them with the naked eye sometimes not so much and so basically there is a study a number of studies that use occlusal uh, micro and macro wear but basically what they do is they they have this comparative database of tooth scans and so uh, they have known populations modern populations that they know what they're eating, they know the diet, and then they scan their teeth and they take a look at the macroware and microware on the teeth and they can say, okay, when you're eating a diet that's mostly grain-based and includes these specific foods, this is what the teeth look like, et cetera, et cetera. They have lots of comparative specimens and then they can look at ancient teeth and try to discern from comparing with the, the known modern diet teeth um, what some components of the ancient diet might have been and this only applies to it's sort of called a last supper phenomenon because your teeth wear as you eat and so the wear pattern changes as you continue to eat so there's kind of a high turnover rate and so these these wear patterns capture about a few days to a few weeks of an individual's diet obviously it depends on the abrasiveness of the foods that they're eating and how often they're eating, that kind of thing like that. Yeah, or yeah. Or you're eating foods that are like really assertive in meeting. <laughs> I just got the picture you <laughs> I can't tell from an iPhone picture what's what you ate. I'm gonna so, say pepperoni roll. So for forget it. For those of you at home. Um, <laughs> I just while Anna was talking about that, um, I was trying to be sciency. Stuffed like basically stuffed my phone in my mouth and took a photo of my teeth and said, "Hey, what did I eat?" Ah, <laughs> uh, where was I with the science? You were talking about abrasive foods. All right, so you know, depending on how abrasive what you're eating is, uh. It may, the marks on your teeth may go away sooner because you are slowly abrading them away as you chew on whatever you're eating. So you can compare the scans of ancient teeth with a database of scans of known teeth that consumed a known diet and see what looks most similar. But this is one of those things that's just one line of evidence. It really, really helps to also know what foods were available in the ecosystem around the people that you're trying to reconstruct the diet for and and what um, they were likely to have eaten so that you can further narrow down the possibilities. So if we were to talk about that kind of narrowing down of available resources for our revolutionary bread site of the, the shoe bikery. Yes! Yes! <laughs> oh, oh. Ah, shoe biked goods. Okay. <clears throat> So uh, what was available 14,400 years ago in Jordan? So in terms of fauna, you got some deer, you got fallow deer and gazelle, and you also have tortoises, hares, and partridge. These are all consumable resources. Some of them are easier to catch than others. You can kind of just walk over and pick up a tortoise, but um, it's kind of harder to hunt a gazelle. Um, I was just staring so, at my teeth again. Sorry. No, it's okay. <laughs> um, one thing I did want to mention. So you said in the hearths there were all of these rush tubers mm-hmm. among those, mm-hmm. what, 64,000 remains? 65,000. So 
first of all, they, they, that in, indicates that they must have been kind of in a wetland environment because rushes and reeds typically grow in sort of marshier or at least wetter areas. Yeah. And, and, and they are... Everywhere that the species lives now is pretty marshy. Yeah. And uh, one really cool thing that I read was, I mean, yeah, parts of the rushes are edible and, and for sure they were probably using that to eat, but it wasn't just the tubers that they were interested in because early Natufians um, may have built structures out of reeds. So they would have had stone foundations and then um, superstructures composed of reeds. So they would have sort of woven reed walls. And so that also kind of explains why there, there would have been so many of these club rush remains yeah because they weren't just using the tubers yeah and if you think about it um this is this is the spot where you stay for x season um and then you head off to continue on your hunting and gathering calendar um and then you come back next year you clean it up you like throw last year's thatch roof and sort of like rattan style wall you throw that in the fire very Pinterest. Yes. Yeah. So it makes sense that this would be, it's not as though there was some like tragic conflagration. Um, it's just, no, it's just housekeeping. The, yeah. It's just, yeah. You just clean it up. You, you know, patch it up again. So um, takeaway points from talking about the bread revolution, the paleo diet, there's a way to eat a healthy human diet without equating it to the diet of our ancestors, you know, early, humans and neanderthals were so healthy and so jacked and so thin you know we have to eat like them to to succeed like them that's a logical fallacy and if you really want to optimize your diet please talk to a doctor or a nutritionist or really really do your research we know a lot about what the human body needs now and just like different groups have different diets all over the world dietary needs are different from everybody the I mean, the final takeaway is that bread is great We've loved it forever. Yeah. It's great. Bread. Don't eat don't eat don't eat so much of it. And no. don't and don't be a jerk to people that want to eat bread. Yeah, and don't be a jerk to people who decide not to eat bread. Exactly. Live and let bread. Indeed. Well, thanks for listening to us rant about the paleo diet. Thanks for listening in general. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on social media. On Facebook, we're The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. On Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And um, if you want to tell us how you feel about the paleo diet, please, please, um, please, shoot us an email. We're over at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear from you. We sure would. And we'd also love it if you would think about throwing a couple bucks our way. Uh, we have a Patreon. It's www.patreon.com slash thedirtpodcast. And anything you can contribute helps us to tell these stories from archaeology and anthropology to sort of fight science illiteracy to really show that we all share a complex human story. And that's really important our to us. Our story. We'll, we'll make it happen. Hashtag our story. Thanks for listening, you guys. Thanks. We love you. You're all right. Bye. Bye. Bye.